Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Quill. Today's episode features Dr. Jubilee Brown from the Levine Cancer Institute in Charlotte, North Carolina, and Dr. Elizabeth Diver from the Stanford Cancer Institute in Stanford, California. They will be discussing new data on cervical, endometrial, and ovarian cancers presented at the 2022 ASCO Annual Meeting held in Chicago, Illinois. This episode is part of a larger educational program entitled 2022 Global Conference Coverage, an update on the clinical development across gynecologic malignancies. For more information on Dr. Brown and Dr. Diver, along with a link to the complete program, including a downloadable slide set and clinical commentaries, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say about new results presented at the 2022 ASCO Annual Meeting. My name is Jubilee Brown, and I'm a professor and division director of gynecologic oncology at the Levine Cancer Institute at Atrium Health in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm joined today by my colleague, Dr. Lisa Diver, who is a clinical assistant professor in the division of gynecologic oncology and the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. Welcome, Dr. Diver. Thanks so much. Happy to be here with you. Great. Well, so today we'll be highlighting a few of the studies that were presented at the 2022 ASCO annual meeting uh, and really focus in on key data for cervical cancer, endometrial cancer, and ovarian cancer. So let's get started. So first start by highlighting Keynote 826. So this is a subgroup analysis of Keynote 826, which is pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy in patients with persistent, recurrent, or metastatic cervical cancer. And this was presented by Dr. Krish Tiwari. Let's dive into the study. So this was an international randomized double-blind phase three trial that enrolled 617 patients with persistent, recurrent, or metastatic cervical cancer. These patients had no prior systemic chemotherapy and had a good performance status. They were stratified by the presence of metastatic disease their CPS score for PDL1, and whether they had planned bevacizumab or not. So essentially, this was a trial for recurrent and metast- or metastatic cervical cancer with chemotherapy, plus or minus bevacizumab, plus or minus pembrolizumab. Patients were treated until death, radiographic progression, or unaccessible toxicity or study completion. And there were dual primary endpoints with overall survival and progression-free survival. So when we look at the baseline characteristics, really with all comers, um, we see really no substantial differences between the arms. They were well-balanced. And when we look at progression-free and overall survival in the key patient subgroups, I think really what we see across the board is actually an improvement in median progression-free and median overall survival. Uh, for all of the different subtypes. And that holds true as you look for um, histology, so squamous or non-squamous, for platinum use, whether it was carboplatin or cisplatin, whether bevacizumab was administered. And when we look at the hazard ratios, uh, those also are consistent across the board. When we pull out the PDL1 CPS greater than or equal to one subgroup, basically this is, I think, really interesting as well because we see the same theme of uh, improved uh, PFS and OS uh, in the pembrolizumab arm. 
When we look at other key patient subgroups, both for all comer and CPS greater than or equal to one populations, we see the same theme. Basically, the, the bottom line is that uh, there's a benefit to PFS in all the subgroups, um, and all of these subgroups were pre-specified. So basically, we saw it across the board. Essentially, this drug benefited everyone who received it. So um, I'm, I think the investigators concluded that these data further support the use of pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy plus or minus bevacizumab as a new standard of care for women with persistent, recurrent, or metastatic cervical cancer. The second study I'd like to highlight is in endometrial cancer. This is a randomized phase three study of maintenance selenexor versus placebo in endometrial cancer. Impact of subgroup analysis and molecular classification. So um, this was presented by Dr. Vicki Mecker, and uh, I've heard it called the CNDO trial before. Uh, so selenexor is an oral XPO1 inhibitor. Uh, what does that mean? This is an XPO1-mediated nuclear exporter sign compound. And I think the key here is that this drug induces nuclear accumulation of P53. So that's sort of an interesting uh, thing about how it works. Um, when we look at what uh, these authors did, uh, they used patients who had stage four or uh, first relapse of uterine cancer and uh, randomized these patients two to one for selenexor versus placebo. Uh, this is an oral inhibitor, so they received 80 milligrams orally on a weekly basis until progression, or for patients who had a BMI of less than 20, 60 milligrams orally. Um, and they had a primary endpoint of progression-free survival that was investigator-assessed. Thought it was really interesting here that their predefined exploratory endpoint was molecular subclassification. And um, you know that is, is sort of front and center for how we talk about these patients now based on the TCGA system of these four independent subtypes, these authors looked at poly-mutated patients, MSI patients, um, and patients who had uh, mutated TP53. So when we look at the patient characteristics and the intent to treat population, we really don't see any significant differences between patients in terms of their histology. A little over half were endometrioid in uh, both groups. Uh, we don't see any significant differences in primary stage four versus recurrent disease, and um, we don't see any differences in complete versus partial response. So what we do see is that when we look at the intent to treat population and we evaluate the primary endpoint of PFS, Selenexor had a median PFS in all comers of 5.7 months compared with placebo at 3.8 months. And um, the hazard ratio was 0.7, uh, which was statistically significant. Um, in this intent to treat population, we see toxicity like nausea, vomiting, constipation, a uh, little bit of thrombocytopenia. But what I think is most interesting in this trial is when we look at specifically the P53 patient subgroup. So here we see that the arms are really pretty well balanced between selenexor and um, placebo, uh, though more patients who received selenexor had recurrent disease. And when we look at the preliminary analysis of that pre-specified exploratory 
PFS endpoint, patients with P53 wild type, we see a really big difference between in median PFS. Selenexor was 13.7 months, placebo was 3.7 months. And so that hazard ratio audited is 0.375, unaudited 0.4. So that's a 10-month improvement in progression-free survival in patients with wild-type P53. However, in patients who had P53 mutant or aberrant endometrial cancer, uh, Selenexor had a 3.7-month progression-free survival and uh, compared with placebo, that was a 5.6-month progression-free survival. I think what's important here in the intent-to-treat population, uh, these authors showed a 30% decrease in the risk of progression or death. But very interestingly, specifically in the patients who had P53 wild type, we saw a 10-month progression-free survival uh, improvement. So my key takeaway for the Siendo trial really is that this is an interesting compound, not just for all comers, but really for patients who are P53 wild type. Thank you so much for your excellent distillation, Dr. Brown. I think that these are some really exciting phase three trials to be performed in our gynecologic cancer space. I think we'd like to start first with Keynote 826. It was great to get this subgroup analysis from Dr. Tawari. Can you explain to us how this data from these subgroup analyses is going to affect your use of this data in practice? Absolutely. That's a great question. Keynote 826 is really sort of groundbreaking uh, news because it tells us that the addition of pembrolizumab to chemotherapy with or without bevacizumab gives us an improvement uh, in every single patient population that we look at. Uh, So in other words, no matter how you subdivide the data, the addition of pembrolizumab is beneficial, both for progression-free and overall survival. I completely agree. Um, I think this has changed our standard of care. And it's interesting that while the intention to treat population was positive in this study, that we, as we all know, the approval came through for the CPS positive population. Now, what do you think we should do with the CPS less than one uh, cervical cancer population based on these data? And what do you do in your practice? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question because you're right. We had changed a sort of how we practiced based on the CPS greater than one group. Um, but this really tells us that we can apply pembrolizumab to all of our patients. And that is the game changer, right? Um, before, you know, we were making sure that we tested patients and really um, our decision tree was based on um, that CPS score. Now, I think that honestly becomes a little less important. We know that that the addition of pembrolizumab is beneficial for all comers. How about you? How do you use that information? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question here to decide. Um, you know, it's hard with the Keynote A26 population, including only, I think it was 11% CPS less than one. So it's a very small subgroup, I think, it makes it challenging. You know, when the intention to treat population shows a positive outcome, it's hard not to want to use this for everybody. Um, I think, though, with the FDA approval, currently in our practice, we're restricting the addition of pembrolizumab to the CPS you know, of one or greater. Um, but I'm hoping that we can start to edge that forward because I do think that there's a population of patients, even with CPS less than one, who may benefit from the addition of pembrolizumab. And I don't want to 
you know, to deny them that opportunity for improvement in their PFS and, and OS, importantly, in this study. Yeah, that's really well said. I think we can move on to the Siendo trial of Selenexer. Um, I was excited to see this you know, phase three trial of a maintenance therapy in endometrial cancer, which we haven't had, of a novel compound, which is exciting. And so from Dr. Macker's presentation, you mentioned that a key takeaway is potentially the use of this drug only in particular molecular subsets. Now, what do you think in general about the use of molecular characterization in endometrial cancer and how it will inform our study design moving forward with this compound? Oh, that's a great question. I think, you know, this really is sort of the wave of the future. And that molecular subclassification gives us so much more information that we haven't really known what to do with before now. Um, I think the Siendo study is a great example of how that information really will refine how we practice medicine. Um, you know, the, the, the status of P53 in this patient population, as you can see here, really impacts the uh, utility of this medication. And so I think that uh, hopefully we'll be able to pull out patients who have tumors that are likely to be responsive to certain agents. Here, P53 with Selenexor. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's particularly exciting that not only is this subgroup analysis informative, but it's also related to the mechanism of action of the drug. It's always nice to see those things in alignment. Right. Yeah, that's true. It sort of uh, tells the story. <laughs> exactly. It helps to tell the whole story. We always like to see that. Um, so do you think this is ready for prime time or what would you like to see as next steps for this drug? I tend to be conservative in terms of implementing things into practice, but um but here, I think we have really solid data on this phase three trial. And I think that the data speaks for itself, uh, that there's a really substantial difference in outcome uh, for this subgroup of patients. Yeah, I think that that's true. I think that particularly, you know, that the poor PFS numbers in the placebo group and the P53 aberrant group. I think really speak to the area of need for this group of patients. And I I think that, you know, a 10-month PFS benefit, you know, while it would be nice to see it confirmed in a randomized trial specifically in this cohort rather than just you know, in a subset analysis, we we know that these patients need something and it would be nice to be able to offer them something in a place where we don't have a standard care maintenance therapy in the meantime. So uh, speaking of endometrial cancer, I'd like to highlight a couple more studies from ASCO in our endometrial cancer patients. So I'll start with Garnet. Um, we're going to talk about the endometrial cancer expansion cohorts of this large multi-cohort single arm phase one study of just Starlimab. Here specifically in patients with recurrent or advanced endometrial cancer with less than or two prior lines of treatment. And here we have two sub-cohorts of endometrial cancer, again, speaking of molecular subtypes, one for the MMR deficient or MSI high population, and the other in the microsatellite stable or MMR proficient population. And they received a Starlimab 500 milligrams IV every three weeks for four cycles, and then transitioned to 1,000 milligrams every six weeks until progression, discontinuation, or withdrawal. The baseline characteristics are, in general, what you would expect. You can notice the difference in histology between the mismatch repair deficient and proficient groups, consistent with what we know about the molecular characterization of these tumors. 
And if we go to the primary endpoint analysis to highlight here, we see a really exciting 45% overall response rate in the mismatch repair deficient group, including 16% complete responses, which is pretty astounding. In the mismatch repair proficient group, we see a 15% response rate, which is exciting in this group that's not historically as considered responsive to these checkpoint inhibitors, including a few complete responses in this group as well. And I think very exciting, there are many patients uh, with long duration of response with a median DOR that wasn't reached in the mismatch repair deficient population. And as we can see on the Kaplan-Meier curves of both progression-free and overall survival, there seems to be a nice long tail on these curves indicating long duration of response for the patients who are responding. I think with an astounding 60% uh, survival at 24 months in the mismatch repair deficient group. Again, these are recurrent or advanced endometrial cancer, and we know that this is an area of need in our population. Fortunately, there were no particularly new safety signals identified in these expansion cohort charts with high percentages, 99 to 100% rates of adverse events. However, lower rates of grade three and particularly lower rates of immune-related toxicities, five to 10%, and very few leading to discontinuation, less than 10% in each group. So overall, I think the key takeaways from Garnet are that we see persistently a very good response to anti-PD-1 checkpoint inhibitor in the mismatch repair deficient or MSI high group in endometrial cancer. It's also exciting to see a signal of 15% response rate in the mismatch repair proficient or microsatellite stable group. And I think really exciting was the long durations of response with median DOR not reached in the mismatch repair deficient and 19 months in the mismatch repair proficient group, which is really exciting, with particularly with well-tolerated treatment with low rates of discontinuation for toxicity. So excited to have this option for our patients with endometrial cancer. Considering novel options for our patients with endometrial cancer, I also wanted to highlight the ENDOBAR trial. This was an open-label, non-randomized, multi-site phase two of a triplet non-chemotherapy combination endometrial cancer. This was bevacizumab, atuzolizumab, and rucaparib for recurrent and progressive endometrial cancer presented by Dr. Bradley. So this was a, a single arm study of one to two lines of prior therapy patients with endometrial cancer who received the triplet non-chemo combination of atezolizumab, bevacizumab, and rucaparib every 21 days until progression or discontinuation. They had a six-patient study lead-in and then had planned 30 patients on trial. Their primary outcome was overall response rate in this population, and secondarily, they looked at progression-free and overall survival as well as toxicity of this triplet. The demographics of their population uh, you can see that they had 28% of patients African-American in this group, which is really important for representation of this population in endometrial cancer, with 50% serous carcinomas, only 20% endometrioid, and included carcinosarcoma, a very important and underrepresented group at 13% of the patients in this population. These are predominantly advanced stage patients, and 13% had mismatch repair deficient tumors. They had an overall response rate in this population of 42%, I think, which is very exciting for a prior treated endometrial cancer population. And you can see here that they had two complete responses, one in the mismatch repair in, uh, intact and one in mismatch repair deficient tumors, as well as a very high stable disease rate. Overall, that they had uh, responses in a variety of histologies, 
as well as in a mismatch of pair deficient and proficient tumors. So pretty exciting that we see a mixed collection of responses here and stable disease in the carcinosarcoma patients, which is also exciting in that difficult population. For duration of response, they had a median duration of five and a half months, um, and they did see that this was longer in the mismatch of pair deficient patients with a 9.8 month average DOR. Median progression-free survival was 6.2 months and median overall survival was 15.5 months. Overall, the triplet combination was well tolerated with low rates of grade three or higher adverse events, predominantly abdominal pain and uh, changes in liver function tests or amylase. Two out of 22 patients with mismatch or pair uh, proficient tumors and zero patients of the mismatch or pair deficient population needed to discontinue their drug for a treatment-related adverse event for a total discontinuation rate of only 7%, indicating this was well-tolerated. Importantly, these authors are going to continue to do translational work to try to determine other relevant biomarkers of success in this triplet combination. So key takeaway from the Endobar trial, this was a first presentation of a triplet non-chemotherapy treatment in advanced or recurrent endometrial cancer. They showed that this was safe and tolerable with an exciting 42% overall response rate mixed in terms of histologies and molecular subtypes. So this uh, exciting triplet is potentially reasonable for a future study, um, particularly as we know we need treatments for this population after chemotherapy. Switching to ovarian cancer, and we're going to look at the very exciting phase three randomized Athena mono study. So Athena is an international randomized double blind phase three trial that actually has four arms. The presentation at ASCO was specifically in the rucaparib monotherapy group called Athena Mono, looking at arm B versus D in the trial schematic, which is the rucaparib versus placebo only arm analysis. They included patients with stage three to four high grade epithelial ovarian fallopian tube or primary peritoneal cancer who had completed primary platinum chemotherapy and achieved a partial or complete response. Here are the baseline characteristics of the population. You can see it divided up by the homologous recombination deficient population versus the all-comer intention to treat population. And you can see in general that the rucaparib and placebo arms are well-balanced throughout all of the relevant subtypes. You can see in the intention to treat population that approximately 21% of the included patients had a BRCA mutation. So investigator PFS in the homologous recombination population here showed a benefit of rucaparib over placebo with a hazard ratio of 0.47 and a median PFS of 28 months versus 11 months. So more than a doubling of progression-free survival in this homologous recombination population, which is very exciting. In the intention to treat our all-comer population, we still see persistent benefit of the use of rucaparib maintenance therapy in this population of 20 months versus nine months and a hazard ratio again of 0.5. Diving a little bit more into the subgroups, the BRCA mutant population, where the median PFS was not reached, consistent with the excellent response of these tumors to PARP inhibitor maintenance therapy versus 14 months in placebo with a hazard ratio of 0.4. In the LOH high or loss of heterozygosity high population, BRCA wild type, we still see that 20 month versus nine month progression free survival benefit. And importantly, 
in the homologous recombination proficient or HRD negative population, we still see persistent three-month progression-free survival benefit with the use of rucaparib maintenance therapy of 12 months versus nine months with a hazard ratio of 0.65 in this group. A look at the subgroups indicate a potential benefit for rucaparib in all subgroups analyzed uh, without seeing a trend towards benefit from placebo. And in the patients with a disease that was measurable, there was an overall response rate of 58% to the rucaparib in the HRD population. Small numbers, but still exciting that this is not only maintenance, but maintenance treatment for patients with partial response after chemo. This drug was considered safe. And while there were greater than 90% adverse events reported in both arms of the trial, there were very few discontinuations for toxicity, approximately 12% in the rucaparib arm, consistent with a well-tolerated drug. We always think about cases of MDS or AML, and in this case, there were two in the rucaparib arm out of more than 400 patients. Specifically looking at the increased ALT and AST, which we, we know we see with rucaparib, while this did occur in 42% of patients in the rucaparib arm, no cases were considered severe. Most common adverse events with rucaparib were nausea, fatigue, anemia, and increased liver function tests. Athena Mono is a very exciting large randomized phase three, indicating progression-free survival benefit of the use of maintenance rucaparib for 24 months in patients with advanced epithelial ovarian cancer after response to frontline platinum-based chemotherapy. This benefit was seen in the intention-to-treat population, regardless of homologous recombination or BRCA status, although consistent with prior PARP inhibitor trials, the benefit was greatest in the BRCA and HRD populations. Fortunately, there were no new safety signals and we are excitedly waiting for the overall survival benefit. Um, and the authors concluded here, and I agree that rucaparib showed benefit as first-line maintenance therapy in this population. Thank you so much. That was really just an excellent summary of those key studies, uh, Dr. Diver. So I hope it's okay with you. I have a couple questions for you. When we look at Garnet, so it looks like there was really clearly activity of distarlamab in patients who had previously treated recurrent or advanced uterine cancer. And this was both in the MSI high and the MS stable groups. But we see so much more activity in the MSI high group. So do you think that this means we should restrict the use of distarlamab to MSI high? Or is that response rate of like 15% response rate with such a long duration of response in both groups? Is that enough? to justify distarlamab as an option for all comers with recurrent or advanced uterine cancer, regardless of MSI? That's a really great question, Dr. Brown. Thank you. And I think a lot of us are, are wondering about this. You know, 15% is not unreasonable. We all know that we use treatments in recurrent gynecologic cancer with about that response rate um, in the hopes that our patient is one of those 15%. Um, I think that there is potentially benefit of single agent distarlamab in this population. However, you know, we know from the use of the lenvatinib-pembrolizumab combination that perhaps we can actually increase that response rate in the microsatellite stable or MMR proficient population by the addition of a second drug for combo treatment. While those response rates are certainly higher than the 15% we see here with the Starlimab, the Starlimab monotherapy does seem more tolerable. And so I think that for a mismatch repair proficient tumor, if you have a patient who you think 
can't have combination therapy or won't tolerate it, it's certainly reasonable to use single agent therapy as a shot, because if she does have her tumor respond, you potentially could see a long duration of response and considerable con clinical benefit for her. Besides the response, there was, you know, stem stable disease as well. And so I think the clinical benefit rate here would justify that in the absence of the ability to use combination therapy. Yeah, thank you. I, I totally agree with you. I think that those long responses really are striking. With that in mind, do you think we should be testing everyone for mismatch repair now? Um, and does that kind of influence your choice of what to do, chemo or IO for patients with uterine cancer? I, yes, I do. I think, you know, my practice is to test all tumors for mismatch repair status. We're doing this generally upfront, but particularly by recurrence because it does affect our treatment decisions. You know, we know that the mismatch repair deficient tumors are much more likely to respond to single agent immune checkpoint inhibitors. And so uh, we are using this to triage single agent versus combination therapy with the use of immune checkpoint. And I think as we bring these drugs further up, and I do think we'll be seeing them come into first line, it's going to be important that we understand the tumor status of our patients as we make these decisions. I think that point was well seen in the Siendo trial you presented as well, that hopefully very soon, molecular status of these tumors will very much drive how we treat these patients. So you're reading my mind. So I'm thinking that maybe it's time to base treatment on molecular classification. What do you think? Do you routinely order that now? Or is it something that you're going to consider moving forward? I agree. I think we're in a transition time now where we all feel that molecular classification really does matter for our endometrial cancer patients and should drive treatment. But we don't have all of the data quite yet to drive every decision. And so I do think that every patient uh, with advanced or recurrent endometrial cancer, if not every endometrial cancer patient, you know, deserves to have testing for molecular classification. And I do think that we're going to start changing our treatments. We've seen, for example, the increased importance of chemotherapy in the P53 aberrant population up front. We've seen this drive our decisions about immune checkpoint inhibitors, and now we're potentially seeing it drive our decision-making about cell and exer maintenance as well. So I think that more and more we're going to see this, and hopefully in both directions, for example, with de-escalation of care for our poly tumors. Great, great. Yeah, so such an exciting time to practice, right? Absolutely. Um, so, so let's switch gears a little bit, and <clears throat> let's talk about the endobar study. So bevacizumab, atezolizumab, and caprib. So, um, so the majority were MSI stable, but you know, like fifty percent of this population was serious. So it was a little bit of a grab bag of histologies. Do you think that influenced patient outcomes? And you know, would a more homogeneous group maybe have made these results even more favorable or, or generalizable? What do you think? That's a really good question. Um, I agree. This is a grab bag and it's a very small study. And as we were just discussing, you know, I do feel that histology and also importantly, molecular subtype, you know, will affect response, especially when we're using drugs like PARP inhibitors and immune checkpoint inhibitors. I think that, you know, hopefully what these authors were looking for was enough of a response rate to sort of justify a larger and perhaps more molecular specific trial. Um, and, you know, I think that what's exciting though, is that this seems to be, you know, a population of high risk histologies. You mentioned half serous, also 
you know, carcinosarcoma, um, and some there's a clear cell patient as well. And it's possible that, you know, this response rate in this more difficult to treat group of histologies might, you know, be a, even more exciting potentially. Um, but I think that that's going to remain to be seen, uh, particularly also teasing out the role of each of these three drugs in potentially different molecular groups, as well as different histology types. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I was really struck by the fact that only 2% of patients had to be discontinued with this th this triplet therapy. I was kind of surprised that it wasn't higher. This this triplet therapy, it's pretty well tolerated. So, um, so do you think that that could be almost like a standard arm to move forward with or an experimental arm to move forward with now? I think an experimental arm, absolutely. And I would love to see this move forward in, in trial. Um, I think you know, I agree. The tolerability was striking, I think, particularly because we all know the difficulties of toxicity in the lenvatinib pembrolizumab treatment that we're using. Um, you know, it's possible that choosing a different uh, antiangiogenic, for example, might help us have more tolerability if we can have similar response rates. So I'm hopeful that, you know, there will be a larger follow-up trial here to help tease out the role of these three drugs, um, in which populations. And I think importantly also, um, you know, we all want to understand the role of immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy after prior IO, right? And right. as we're going to see, you know, GYO18 and Ruby and Leap come out, you know, we're going to need to understand what comes next. Yeah, stay tuned. That's a that's a good point. Um, so let's let's talk for a minute about the Athena Mono trial. Uh, this is, you know, really just such a gallant trial. Multiple arms evaluating all comers in the upfront maintenance setting, and you know, this is almost just the first piece, you know, the monotherapy arm. But I think it's really interesting, and it has clinically useful information because now we have rucaparib with a significant improvement in PFS in the upfront maintenance setting. And that's regardless of HRD status. Like, so whether patients are HR deficient or proficient, we saw some benefit. So how do you incorporate that? Are you going to use this regardless of, um, of HRD versus HRP? Or do you think because of the difference in the magnitude of benefit, would you reserve it just for HRD patients? I think that's a great question and one that, um, you know, a lot of us are wrestling with in practice. I think that it's really nice to have recaparib you know, as an option for first-line maintenance in our all-comer group. Um, and I think that the the fact that this trial was positive in the intention-to-treat population, you know, does show that benefit. Um, you know, I think that the, the three-month PFS benefit in the HR proficient population, um, you know, warrants conversation with our patients. And, and I agree um, that all patients really should probably be offered PARP inhibitor maintenance. Um, but, you know, I think that it's definitely more important for patients to to hear the pros and cons as for everything and really apply their values to it. As you know, while the drug was in general tolerated, we, we did see that there was toxicity with this agent. Um, you know, that being said, I think that the tail on the curve is intriguing and that probably there are patients that we are putting in that HRP grab bag that really do have tumors that respond to PARP inhibitors, and we just don't know how to, to tease them out with our current biomarker testing yet. And so it's it's very reasonable to treat everybody. Yeah, good point. With this PFS improvement, so do you think we need to wait for overall survival, or is it is this enough to provide recaparib as an option? 
You know, that's a great question and, and really well said. I know we have had this debate in our field um, and I, I agree with you. I think OS and an upfront study with, you know, our patients now living, fortunately, several years with many lines of therapy, it's, it's a really hard bar to hit. And while I think ultimately it is the most important bar, you know, we want to help patients live longer and we want to cure patients. Um, I think that the PFS benefit we really have established in advanced ovarian cancer as as the bar to hit to bring therapies to practice, I think particularly first line. And I think particularly impressive PFS benefits like we see with the PARP inhibitors, particularly in the BRCA mutated and and HRD populations are absolutely adequate to bring these to practice. I couldn't agree more. That's great. So so now how do we choose between agents? We've got all these, you know, multiple PARPs. Do you think they're the same or how do you choose in your practice? Oh, that is such a good question, Dr. Brown. Um, You know, I think that um, we obviously don't have head-to-head data, and I don't know that we will. And so a lot of us are making choices, you know, based on um, our comfort in prescribing these agents. Um, I think I make a lot of choices based off toxicity for my patients. Um, How are they coming out of chemotherapy? Uh, and with what toxicity, for example, did they have issues with thrombocytopenia during treatment? Um, and I think also length of follow-up is influencing some of us. You know, some of these trials that have come out first and the drugs that have been around a little bit longer, we might have more experience with. But I think all three of the FDA-approved proper inhibitors in ovarian cancer clearly have excellent activity. I don't think we have any data that one is necessarily better than another. And so all are reasonable to choose. I think we practice very similarly. <laughs> and yes, I, I think that side effect profile is is really key in making that decision. Um, well, great. Well, thanks, Dr. Diver, for um, talking with me today and um, educating me and for this just great discussion. So this concludes our discussion on the key clinical studies for cervical endometrial and ovarian cancer uh, presented at the 2022 ASCO annual meeting. Thank you for listening. And on behalf of Dr. Diver and myself, we hope that this discussion was useful to your patients and to your clinical practice. Thank you very much, Dr. Brown and Dr. Diver. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program, 2022 global conference coverage, and update on the clinical development across gynecologic malignancies, and to download a highlights slide set, including the various studies associated with this discussion, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.